Welcome to episode 19 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Today's episode is devoted to Rome, the eternal city. And much has been said, sung, written, and fantasized about Rome. I'm going to try to strip it down to the bare minimum. Uh, Before we talk about the Jewish community of Rome, it's necessary to understand something more than we already do about the general history of Rome. Rome is one of the oldest inhabited cities in Europe, and today it is the third most populous city in the European Union and the first most populous city in Italy. It has a population of approximately 3 million people, and the metropolitan area of Greater Rome has about 4.5 million people. But, and there are two important buts, Rome was not always that big, nor was it always the capital of Italy. In fact, there was no such thing as Italy before the last third of the 19th century. So for much of Rome's illustrious history, it was the capital of something else. And that something was a Roman monarchy long before the Christian era, eventually a Roman republic, and then towards the beginning of the Christian era, the Roman Empire that we all know so much about. So Rome was first referred to as the Eternal City in the first century before the Common Era by a Roman poet named Tibullus. The expression was then taken up by Ovid, Virgil, Livy, and many others. And eventually, a couple of centuries later, Rome got a new nickname as the empire grew to its maximum extent when it went from the Euphrates River all the way to Gibraltar and from England all the way to what is currently the Middle East. The city became known as Caput Mundi, the capital of the world. Uh, But it wasn't to last. Nothing is forever in politics, and empires seem to have a bad habit of not lasting at all. Anyway, Rome reached its greatest expansion in the second century of the Common Era, when it did, in fact, stretch from Hadrian's Wall in the north of England to the Persian Gulf and from the Caucasus Mountains to Gibraltar. And all of the Mediterranean was indeed a Roman lake. Now, because of that, as you can guess... Jews and the Roman Empire, or previous to that, the Roman Republic, have a long, complicated relationship. There have been Jews in Rome since at least the second century before the Common Era, long before the destruction of the Second Temple, and Jews have played an important role at various junctures of Roman history. One of those junctures was during the period of its maximum expansion, when the growing religion of Christianity, which Romans saw as a Jewish sect, created all kinds of problems for Rome. The principal values of Roman culture were law and order, predictability, regularity, things like that. So when they saw the Jews as warring among themselves between these different sects, and they saw this new upstart religion called Christianity as provoking violence and public arguments, they outlawed Christianity and they tried to suppress it and keep it from ever developing into the worldwide religion that it is today. One of the greatest emperors of the third century was Diocletian, who lived in a palace in Split and famously, maybe it's just coincidence, but he split the Roman Empire into an eastern half and a western half. 
and the eastern half was eventually ruled from Constantinople and became later in history the Byzantine Empire. The western half was ruled initially from Rome, then from Milano, finally from Ravenna, but it eventually crumbled under repeated onslaughts from various groups of barbarians coming from both the north, various Gothic groups and Franks and Lombards and others, and also coming from the south, the Vandals, who sacked Rome so badly in the middle of the 5th century that we still use the word vandals to describe people who cause a lot of property damage. And we even have a verb in English, vandalized, taken from this barbaric tribe that helped destroy Rome in the 5th century of the Common Era. Rome was sacked repeatedly in the 5th century by a whole series of invaders, and the population fell first from 800,000 to 400,000, then it declined further, and at its low point, after the Gothic siege of the year 537, Rome had fallen to barely 30,000 people and looked like a disaster, like a giant sprawling slum. So what was once the Western Roman Empire became a Western extension of the Byzantine Empire and was actually ruled from Constantinople. But the most interesting thing is that after the Lombards, who came from the north and still control a lot of the banking in the north of Italy, after they invaded, Rome remained nominally Byzantine, but in reality, the popes who ruled Rome pursued a policy of balancing the interests of the Byzantines, the Franks, and the Lombards. So the two most powerful groups of invaders from the north with their estranged cousins from the Eastern Orthodox Church in Constantinople. Now I want to share with you such an unlikely combination of circumstances and personalities that you will think I'm making it up, but I assure you I'm not. When the Muslims first began their great movement north and west from the Arabian Peninsula, when they conquered Spain in 711 and early in the 8th century, they also invaded France, they were defeated at Tours by a man named Charles Martel, which is Charles the Hammer. Martel was an early word in French for hammer, which eventually evolved in today's marteau. But this guy, Charles Martel, was the king of the Franks, and the Franks were the people for whom eventually France was named. It's Francia in Italian, and it was Franca originally in Latin. And they took over from the Gauls, who had been conquered by the Romans before the Christian era. Anyway, this king, Charles Martel, had a son named Pepin the Short. And Pepin, when he came to power, he extended his father's realm in the middle of the 8th century and conquered lots of territories in what are today Germany, Italy, etc., etc. But the two ways in which Pepin the Short is most relevant to our story are the following. One, he donated a bunch of territory in central Italy to the popes. And this territory became known as the Papal States, and created a sizable political entity, much larger than Rome itself or Vatican City, which the popes used as a temporal base of power, including military power. The other thing Pepin the Short did was he fathered Charlemagne, who became the first ever Holy Roman Emperor and who was crowned at St. Peter's by the Pope on Christmas Day in the year 800. In the ninth century, Muslim Arabs sacked 
St. Peter's and St. Paul's, which were both located outside the city walls. They did not succeed in breaching the city walls, but they did mount a sustained attack and they looted a lot of religious objects. Rome fell into feudal chaos in the 9th and 10th centuries. And one of the reasons this era is known as the Dark Ages is very simple and very literal. When Rome was a real power, and before the arrival of all the barbarians, the streets throughout the empire were lit at night by public lamplighters. And this was a a function that the state provided for safety and security to make commerce better and to make people feel safe in the cities and safe traveling between cities. When Rome fell apart, this service stopped and Europe literally became dark for the first time in many centuries. So the popes, who were also the bishops of Rome, faced a long series of challenges, which you might not immediately think of as challenges to the Pope, but there were challenges to the institution of the papacy and to the continued rule of faith over reason. So one of these challenges obviously was the Enlightenment. Another was the Protestant Reformation, and the Church then launched the Counter-Reformation in sort of this cosmic game of chess. The Renaissance, with all of its paintings and literature and philosophy and scientific discoveries, was a huge challenge to the papacy. And in some ways, the papacy struggled through and maintained an impressive presence in Rome until Italy became unified by Italian nationalists in the 1860s and early, early 70s. And basically, A kingdom of Italy was proclaimed with Rome as its capital, and the popes were forced to retreat to the very small area of Rome that they still controlled, which was called the Vatican City to this day. And finally, shortly after the war, the Republic of Italy was declared. The monarchy was now defunct, and that took place in 1946. So what about Jews in Rome? Well, the evidence is that there was a community from at least the second century before the Christian era, and that much of this community came originally from Alexandria in Egypt, where there was a lively commercial exchange between Alexandria and Rome itself. And of course, any time maritime commerce was involved, Jews were in one way or another also involved. And this is how the Jewish community in Rome became established. Today in Italy, after all the depredations of the war, the Nazi period, lots of other tragedies, the whole Jewish community in Italy is roughly 30,000 souls, and about half of those live in Rome. One of the most remarkable things about the Jewish community in Rome is its continuity in a single location, which was for several centuries the Roman Jewish ghetto, but which today is a concentration of Jewish history, museums, restaurants that are both kosher and kosher style, modern synagogues, the ruins of ancient synagogues. And this little homeland of Roman Jewry, which is more than 2,000 years old, is without equal, with the possible exception of Israel itself, in the sense that it's deeply rooted, it has its own dialect containing both Hebrew words and old Italian words that are no longer in use, and its own peculiar culinary tradition, which features a lot of fried foods that everybody in Rome recognizes as Jewish foods. Example, carciofi alla Judea, Jewish artichokes, 
What does that mean? It means baby artichokes prepared in a certain way, and once you taste them, you will never forget that. They also do croquettes made out of dried codfish, like bacalao croquettes, and they do fried zucchini blossoms, which are stuffed often with anchovies and or mozzarella. This ghetto per se, where people were locked in at night and there were special taxes and hardships, was established much later than most of the Jewish ghettos throughout other parts of Europe. It wasn't established until 1555 by Pope Paul IV, who issued an edict called Cum Nimus Absurdum, because it is absurd and inconvenient to the utmost degree that Jews, condemned for their faults by God to eternal slavery, can, with the excuse of being protected by Christian love, be tolerated living among us, dot, dot, dot. We therefore locked them up in this very tiny area which had a dense population that became poorer and poorer. And the area was disfavored geographically because it was flooded periodically by the Tiber going over its banks. It's right along the edges, the shores of the Tiber. And it was kind of a malarial swampland. So people were always doubly surprised that with the political, economic, and health hardships, this Jewish community survived so many centuries. In the heart of the old ghetto is a square called the Piazza delle Cinque Scuole, which means the square of the five synagogues, or shuls, actually. The Italian word scuole is the exact translation of the German word shul, which Yiddish-speaking Jews use to designate a synagogue. This square surrounds a fountain erected in 1591 and restored or renovated in 1930, commemorating the five synagogues that used to exist in the ghetto, which were built by different communities which had different origins. Four of them were originally from Spain, one was from Sicily, and when the Spanish Inquisition forced Jews to leave not only Spain but also Sicily, many of them arrived in Rome, which at the time was much more tolerant towards Jews and which actually never had much of an inquisition and didn't have a history of burning Jews at the stake. Now, all five of these synagogues were located in a single building that has since vanished. But by church law, these buildings had to be low and unassuming and humble. So they weren't particularly impressive, certainly not from the outside. But many of the objects that once made these synagogues so beautiful are now housed in the Jewish Museum of Rome, which is located in the basement of the Grand Synagogue, which didn't go up until the beginning of the 20th century when Rome was clearly under secular control and the community finally built a magnificent building to rival all the incredible basilicas and cathedrals and churches that are all over Rome. Just across the Tiber, in the neighborhood known as Trastevere, there are also some important Jewish institutions, including the Union of Italian Jewish Communities, including also a former Jewish orphanage that has been transformed into a cultural center that is a kosher snack bar and a library, and a primary school and a daycare center. So, Jewish life has spread beyond the confines of the former ghetto, which is no longer squalid. It's now gentrified, it's been yuppified, and it is very high-priced real estate indeed. 
There are also Jewish catacombs scattered throughout Rome in at least four or five different locations, which do not differ significantly from Christian catacombs, which serve the same purpose. One last interesting point in terms of the Rome metropolitan area, the port of ancient Rome was called Ostia, which is very close to Rome's contemporary international airport, which is called Fiumicino. And when Fiumicino was being developed and they built a road in the early 60s to connect the center of Rome with this new airport out near Ostia, they discovered in 1962 the remains of an old synagogue that was huge and dates back to the first half of the first century of the Common Era. And it was rebuilt and expanded several times between the first and fourth centuries of the Common Era. The complex includes a prayer hall, study rooms, and an oven for baking matzah. It also includes a mikveh, whose remains are still visible, and several other objects of Jewish interest. I'm going to leave you there for today with hopes that if you haven't already visited Rome, you will once give yourselves the treat of doing so. And if you have already visited, the next time you go, you might look at it through new eyes. Thank you, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.